Identity crisis. Identity crisis. You may have heard this term before or known someone who has experienced an identity crisis. And by using this term, we are describing someone who suddenly feels lost. It occurs when a person loses something that gave them great significance, worth, or value. For instance, you may witness a person who loses a job they've been a part of for 30-plus years. And now that they no longer have this job, they face an identity crisis. Who am I without this job? You may also witness this from, really, professional athletes across the board. And once they retire, once they're no longer a part of the NFL, NBA, MLB, or whatever it is, who are they now that they are no longer an athlete or an Olympic athlete? You may even witness an identity crisis when a breakup occurs or when a married couple suddenly loses one of the spouses unexpectedly. Who are they as individuals apart from the other? In each of these cases, an identity crisis normally happens when the thing that the person found most significance in and purpose in is suddenly stripped away from them completely. And the effects can be devastating. What we find our identity in will either make us or it will break us in the end. And if we find our greatest identity in the wrong thing, it will certainly crush crush each and every one of us here this morning. But if we find our identity in the right thing, it will give us fullness of life and joy even in the midst of crushing circumstances. So as we consider our own identity here this morning for yourself, what is it that you are finding your identity in? What is it that gives you the greatest significance, worth, and and, and meaning in life? As we come to our text here in Philippians 1, we find that Paul and Timothy, at least, find their greatest identity, their greatest significance and worth in Jesus Christ, in being in Christ. They find their greatest significance here in belonging to Jesus as his servants, and that's how this letter introduces them. And as a result of being in Christ, they are drawn together in deep relational union to one another with the Philippian believers. And this is part of what the first 11 verses cover. So rather than place their identity in something that is merely temporary or fleeting, Paul and Timothy have chosen to find their identity in the Christ who never changes and is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And as a result, they find a firm foundation upon which they can rest. And even as our text will show us here this morning, Paul's identity in Christ will empower him to have deep joy in the presence of suffering, total devotion in the face of death, and selfless service, even in the midst of better options. 
So if you haven't already, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Philippians 1, 12 through 26 as I read our passage here. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. As we come to this text we just read, it's important for us to know that as Paul writes these words, he does so from a prison cell, and he awaits a trial that will determine whether or not he lives or dies. And so because he is in prison, he writes here in these verses to inform the Philippians of how he's doing. After all, they might be distressed and anxious for Paul. And they may be wondering, how are you doing, Paul? Are you making it, brother? And what can we do for you? So Paul begins to explain his situation to them. And it becomes apparent that he is doing very, very well, despite his predicament. In fact, we find that his identity is so sure and so deep in Christ that it empowers him to have deep joy even in the presence of suffering all around him. And so it's here that Paul desires his brothers and sisters to know something important. He wants them to know that what has happened to him has actually worked to advance the gospel. This evil of him being imprisoned unfairly is actually being used by God to advance the gospel. So take heart, he might say, because God is working through my suffering to advance the good news of Jesus. And this is what he wants them to know. We find that the gospel is spreading specifically through the imperial guard at Rome, or what we might call the Praetorian guards 
in Rome. These men would have been Caesar's personal bodyguards, and there may have been around 9,000 of them stationed in Rome where Paul is at. And amazingly, Paul says that because he's in prison, they have now all heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, we, we may wonder here, how in the world did you, Paul, spread the news to all 9,000 of them while you're in prison? I mean, after all, you're just one man in prison. But as many commentators have noted, it's most likely that these guards rotated on shifts and which one would watch Paul. And as they took turns watching Paul, he didn't squander this opportunity at all in self-loathing or self-pity. But he took the opportunity to speak the gospel, quite literally, to a captive audience. While each guard would be forced to watch Paul, he would make sure that they knew he was in prison on account of his identification with Jesus. He was in prison on his account of believing in a crucified and risen Savior who died for their sins and was raised to save them. And so Paul would share this good news with each and every guard he would come in contact with. And as a result of Paul sharing, and most likely the guards sharing this news with the others about this weird prisoner, Paul rejoices that the gospel has advanced across all of the guards despite his imprisonment. These people who would have otherwise never had a chance to hear the good news of Jesus, have now received the opportunity to identify with Christ, even as Paul did. So rather than see his imprisonment as a deep, terrible thing, and rather than sink into insane depression, which is how I think many of us would be tempted, Paul sees this opportunity as a reason to rejoice. For Christ, who is Paul's life, is being proclaimed. And in addition to this, Paul also sees how his imprisonment has encouraged believers there to be even more fearless in the proclamation of the word. By Paul stepping out and, and taking the hit, so to speak, he's inspired countless others to do the same. And as they see their fearless hero step forward and willingly accept the punishment, it fanned the flames of the gospel in greater and brighter ways among all the believers in Rome. So as Paul again evaluates his situation, as he sees how God is working, he rejoices because what matters to Paul is not what he wants, It's not about him or his desires, but it's about Jesus Christ. As Paul continues to speak about how the gospel is advancing through the guard, we then come to find that not everything is necessarily going well. He now draws attention to two groups of believers that have risen up. There is one group that preaches Christ selflessly out of a love for Paul and the gospel, but then, on the other hand, there's a a group that preaches Christ out of rivalry and out of envy of Paul. 
They preach Christ to add to their own glory and to hurt Paul while he is in prison. These are Christian brothers in Christ doing this. Now, we're not told exactly what this rivalry is or or how they could preach the truths about Christ in such a way that it hurt Paul. And while we would like to know these details, we're not given them. But what is clear here is that it is possible to truly preach the truths of Christ with tainted and sinful motivations. We can serve God in such a way so as to bring glory to ourselves at the cost of others around us. And so we learn that there's a type of service to God that seeks its own recognition and its own glory to the detriment of others. And we ourselves, even here this morning, can fall into the same trap. So how do we know if we've fallen into a trap like this? We may have fallen into this trap if we began to see each other as rivals that we're in competition with for the praise and approval of man, rather than seeing each other as teammates in our acts of service for God. We may have fallen into this trap if we become jealous, jaded, and even bitter when other less deserving people in our estimation are treated with greater estimation or significance and honor than ourselves. The church may collectively fall into this trap if it becomes envious of other churches around them that are growing and being blessed as they preach Christ when it isn't happening for their church. And there are a number of other ways this could work itself out with an insatiable desire for more recognition of me, myself, and I, for my service to Christ above others around me. So if we've fallen into this trap, what do we do? How do we get back onto the right track if we recognize that there are impure motives in our own hearts, in our own service to Christ? Well, as God reveals these self-centered motivations, which we all have from time to time, repent of them. Pray for a changed heart in your acts of service to God. Keep serving Christ. Keep preaching Christ. But pray that God would radically change you from the inside out. And if you are jealous of someone over their skills, their service, or ability that they're using to glorify God, seek instead to thank God for that individual. Thank God and praise him for using them for his glory. For the antidote to jealousy, the antidote to insignificance that we all so often feel, is praise and thanksgiving to God for that which truly matters. In this way, the trivial things of this world bounce off us as we uplift the supreme value of Jesus and the gospel above all. And so even as we look at these personal attacks upon Paul, notice how they just seem to bounce off him. These attacks were meant to be hurtful. They were meant to be personal. But they are suddenly inconsequential because Paul has taken the self out of the equation because it's not about him. 
It's about Jesus. So Paul isn't stunned with despair or grief because it's not about his reputation. It's not about his honor. It's not about his glory at the end of the day. It's about Jesus Christ and making him look glorious. And so if Jesus is everything to Paul, so the same should be true of us. And I pray that would be true of all of us here this morning. So if we are like Paul in this way, then we too can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. For in the words of one, if Christ is winning, then only Satan is losing. So Paul's identity in Christ brings about great joy in the midst of suffering, but it also brings total devotion in the face of death. Paul continues, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul continues to rejoice because he knows that this, this being everything that he's gone through, is leading towards his salvation and his deliverance. Everything that Paul is going through here is preparing him for that day when he will see God and receive final vindication and salvation. But as Paul mentions here in the text, he won't get there on his own. For he mentions that it will be through the Philippians' prayers for him and the Holy Spirit that help him toward this end. So while Paul is completely and utterly committed to Jesus, he isn't arrogant or prideful enough to think that in his own strength, he can remain totally devoted to Jesus. Instead, Paul recognizes the important part that the Philippians' prayers and the Holy Spirit play in helping Paul remain wholly devoted to Christ in the face of death. And so Paul's devotion and his conformity to Christ is a community project done with complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And the same is true of us this morning as well. If we are to be totally devoted to Christ as we should be, then we need one another. We need the prayers of each other, just as Paul recognized his own need of their prayers. For our progress in the faith isn't just a me and Jesus type of thing, but our progress in the faith is a community project for each and every one of us here this morning. And so in recognition of this, we ourselves must be praying for one another, even as the Philippians pray for Paul. We must pray for each other that the Holy Spirit would enable us to live rightly as we should in the midst of great harm and difficulty, even as they do for Paul. So pray for one another. And pray especially for your pastors as well. I think very highly of Dan, Rich, Paul, Rocky, Eric, and Dave, several of which have been mentors of mine since I was in middle school. But please know that regardless of how strong you think of them, spiritually speaking, they need your prayers too. And perhaps more than you could ever, ever know. 
So let me encourage you this morning, if you are not doing so already, to start praying for one another today in your church. Pray for one another. Pray for your pastors. Pray for the ministry trip that just left this morning. For God has designed our spiritual success and advancement to largely be in part due to the prayers of his people. So take seriously this God-given responsibility he has granted to you. So if you're here this morning, you've never done anything like that, I want to encourage you to start small. Maybe pray for one family a week. If that's too much, maybe one a month. But nevertheless, start praying because God works through prayer. He works through the Holy Spirit, and it is a community event together. So we come to verse 20 then. Paul wants to make absolutely clear that his desire is to make much of Christ in all things. His intense expectation and hope is that when he sees Jesus again, he will have nothing to be ashamed about at all. For in life and death, he will have been completely devoted to Jesus in every conceivable way. And so it's at this point, out of an overflow of Paul's love for Jesus, he speaks these words that we know and that we love. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And this simple phrase summarizes everything that Paul's life has been about completely. And it is also in this one word that he orients his entire life around. Paul's focus in life, Christ. Paul's goal and purpose in life, Christ. Paul's greatest treasure and longing in life, Christ. Christ is what Paul strives towards with every fiber in his being. And it's what Christians are called to do as well, each and every one of us. For to live as Christ means to make Jesus everything to us. It's to magnify his redeeming work on the cross for us. It's to glorify his name with our life in all things. And it is what is meant to unite us together, just as it does with Paul and the believers in Philippi. We together are to collectively obsess over Jesus. For Christ is our identity if we are in him. And while we don't live for Christ perfectly, know that it is this goal, this purpose, that each and every one of us should be striving for. For this is what it means to be a Christian. So everything that Paul lives for is Christ. But then there is also that second half of the sentence, isn't there? For me to live is Christ— And to die is gain. How can Paul say that it's gain to die? I think it's safe to say that our culture and world doesn't think of death as gain. And I'm not sure that we ourselves even think of death as gain either. But as Paul faces the real possibility of death, 
As he awaits trial, he considers death gain for at least two reasons. First, by dying for Christ, he will show the precious worth of Jesus. By laying down his life for Jesus, he shows his immeasurable worth to all those who are present. His death will not only declare that Jesus is worth living for in comfortable situations, but also dying for in the most miserable of circumstances. He's worth spending every ounce of your life on, and in this way, Paul would make much of Christ in his death. For you don't just lay down your life for a fairy tale. You don't lay down your life for a lie. You only lay down your life for that which you see as infinitely more valuable and precious than your own self-wellness. And for Paul, this is Jesus Christ. He will willingly go to his death for Christ and in doing this, gain the opportunity to display his infinite worth. But then second, there is also more significantly the gaining of Christ in death. And this is most likely the primary gain that Paul has in mind. For it's what Paul basically says just a couple verses down. In death, Paul gets to be with Jesus, whom he's been living for this entire time. He gets to be with the one who laid down his life for him. He gets to be with the author of joy in life itself. He gets to be with the one who will complete him entirely as he enters the presence of Jesus. There is great gain and death for Paul as death acts as a portal to be with what he wants most, Jesus Christ, the treasure of his soul. And it would be this same belief that motivated many Christians following Paul in Rome to also willingly give of their lives in following Jesus. To die is gain would be the shared belief of those who would suffer and die for Jesus as they burned on stakes in Rome. And in fact, there would be so many martyred Christians in Rome that one early church father would write, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And as the seed was sown, the death of the saints would show, it would display the immeasurable worth of Jesus. So as we look at Paul's statement here, I wonder for each and every one of us, can we honestly say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain? If we're being honest with ourselves, and I mean, if we're really, really being honest with ourselves, I'm not sure that we can always say that our purpose in living is Christ. I think we might say our purpose in living is something else whether that be comfort, entertainment, or pleasure, money, power, approval of man, ease of life, fame, honor, recognition, security, family, job, and so on and so forth, I don't think to live is Christ, but to live is something else. And to die isn't gain, but a complete tragic loss and waste of life. Often, how we view our own coming death will show what we are truly living for and if our faith is truly in Christ as our greatest 
treasure. And in these moments where we realize that to live isn't Christ and to die isn't gain, we must again turn to Jesus. We must turn to him and find our identity, our truest identity in Christ alone. For it is only when we find our identity in Christ, as Paul does, that we will be made whole. For it's whom we were made to be completed by, and nothing in this world will satisfy us unless it's Jesus. So Paul's identity with Christ brings about joy in the midst of suffering, total devotion to Jesus in the face of death. But as we move to this final point, we also find that Paul's identity in Christ empowers him to have selfless service in the midst of greater options. As Paul continues on here, he begins to explore the possibility of his living and his dying. Because the reality is, after this trial is over, he could really die. So as he contemplates these two possibilities, life on the one hand and death on the other, he does so by weighing the pros and the cons of each outcome. Not that he really has any say in the matter, but he's simply observing the benefits and then the drawbacks to each. If Paul survives this trial, great. This means that I can continue to serve the church, and this means fruitful labor for me. However, this leaves Paul feeling torn in two, because to stay here on earth means that Paul hasn't fully gained Christ yet. And to be with Christ fully and completely is the far better option, he says in verse 23. For as we've already noted, Christ is everything to Paul. So just because this may be better for Paul does not mean that it's better for the Philippian believers. And Paul, in recognition of this, says, it's better that I remain alive in the flesh for your sake. So if it were up to me, says Paul, I would choose to remain with you and postpone the eternal delight of being with Jesus, even though that would be far better for me. If given the choice, Paul would choose selfless service in the midst of a greater option for himself. Well, after considering these two possibilities, and after he's done weighing them, Paul becomes convinced here that he will indeed remain. He will remain, and he will continue on for the progress and joy of their faith. How Paul knows this, we don't know, but he is certain at this point in the letter he will be released so that the church will continue to progress in their joy and faith and boast all the more in Jesus Christ. And just as Paul strived to see this church progress in its joy and faith, so this church exists to do the same for you as well, just as it did for me so many years ago in my past. It exists to see you built up in the progress and joy of your faith. So please know that is why your pastors are here. They are not here to entertain you during the week, but they are here to see you progress in a deepened faith and joy in the Christ who died to save us 
and was raised in victory over death. And so I also hope it's why you are here this morning as well. To see not only yourself progress in the faith, but to see others around you progress in their faith as well. And so by God's grace, my prayer is that this church will continue to do what it's done for me so many years ago. May it continue to strive towards the progress and joy of your faith. And as we work to deepen our sense of identity in Christ, may it bring about deep joy in the midst of suffering, total devotion in the face of death, and selfless service in the midst of better options. Would you pray with me towards this end? Father, we come before you, thanking you and praising you for Jesus. For it is in Christ that we have hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of death. It is in Christ that we have new life and hope and purpose and meaning. And so I pray that to the core of our being, that Jesus would be truly everything both in life and in death. We ask that you would deepen our faith, help us in our unbelief, and in our blind spots, may the Holy Spirit convict us so that we might turn to you in faith once more. Save us from the deceitfulness of sin, which can come upon us so easily, and may we cherish Christ all the more fervently. May you, Jesus, be glorified now and forevermore. And we pray this in his name. Amen.